As we prepare for the message today, John will be preaching out of Zephaniah 1. No, I'm just joking. Genesis 40, nobody knows where Zephaniah is at. Uh, Genesis 42 will be the message today, verses 1 through 38. This is God's word. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Then he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from there, so that we may live and not die. So ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest any harm befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the one in power over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the nakedness of the land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the nakedness of our land. So they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies, but this you will be tested. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Then he put them all together in prison for three days. And Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, bring grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be proven true, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Surely we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, yet we would not listen. Therefore the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I, did I not tell you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, Yet you would not listen, so also his blood, behold, it is required of us. Now they did not know that Joseph was listening, for there was an interpreter between them, and he turned away from them and wept. Then he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and went from there. Then one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, and he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Then they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us, 
and took us for spies of the, the country. So we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies, we are 12 brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men, leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your household, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it happened that they were emptying their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And they and their father saw their bundles of money, and they feared. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hand, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone remains. If harm should befall him on their journey on which you are going, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Those that could be with us today, please, please be with those who are unable to attend today. Please be with John as he delivers this message. We ask that you... Allow us to hear your word, what you're saying, what is being said about your character, how it applies to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. It's a little bit, uh, little bit cold out. I don't know how many of us are more bent towards warm weather, but I am, so I will complain every day from here through mid-April when it warms back up. Brace yourselves for that. Um, it's interesting, you know, thinking about that, my fickleness and my hatred for cold weather. Um, I grew up in Florida. I wasn't aware that Florida is horribly hot and it's uh, really unsustainable for life. Um, I grew up wearing blue jeans, riding a bicycle down dirt roads all summer long. Now I go to Florida and you have to pack me in ice just to sit outside for a few hours by a swimming pool. But Living in Florida is, is, is an interesting kind of a world because basically you just learn how to be inside all the time, right? You sit in the air conditioning, you drop the thermostat down to 68, and uh, you go outside and you run into a wall of 90% relative humidity, 95 degree air temperature, and uh, you immediately need a shower. It's amazing how fickle we are with something like the temperature um, in my house, we wear sweatpants and sweatshirts and those kinds of things all the time, even in summer, because we make the house cold enough that you can still wear those things inside. But I've, I've found that what makes me comfortable in the summer, when it's, you know, say 90 degrees outside, is like 70. Um, 70 is a bit too hot, right? In the summertime, I want the house to be about 68, 67, somewhere in there. But in the wintertime, that's cold. I want it to be like 71, 73 in the winter time for some reason. Um, but if you were to go from that same house when it's hot outside, that 73 degrees, that same 73 degrees with the same feel would be unsustainable. I would be inside complaining about how hot it is inside. Um, in fact, my house, the air conditioner went out recently and because COVID happened and it was real, and everyone died for a while, they stopped making parts 
don't know if you knew this, but equipment, they quit manufacturing it because everyone died. And so for three years, no one made anything because everyone was dead. And so you couldn't, I still have a back order part for my air conditioner that I ordered in like May of last year. Now I'm just letting it ride. I'm going to see when it shows up, if it ever does, because I think it's going to be a matter of comedy. But it's been a long time and it still never came to my house. Um, I found a way around it. I worked with a friend and we found a way around it because I would have died if I had to live in a house that was above 68 during the summer. But again, if I was to walk into my house right now and it was 68 degrees, I would be miserable because it wouldn't be warm enough. That's how fickle we are as people. And what's interesting is what I feel like makes me comfortable today is not what's going to make me comfortable in June. The exact same temperature, but you take that same fickleness, the same fickle creature that I am, and I feel like I can pick what's right for myself based on my comfort. Based on what makes me comfortable right now is that thing I think I should go after. And I think it's right for me, even though I know I'm fickle. I can't even settle on a consistent temperature. It's very interesting that the thing that makes us comfortable can ruin everything and make us completely miserable. Um, Romans chapter 7, verses 24 through 25, we see, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind... But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Our flesh seeks for comfort. Um, in my flesh, I know 100% how I want to die in my sleep. And I don't mean like gurgling, like I wake up in the process of dying and I'm struggling for air and you know how it feels like when you want to breathe but you can't? Maybe you don't, but your head starts to feel really tight. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. Your head feels really tight. You feel like you're bulging at the temples. Your eyes feel like they're pushing out. That's not how I want to die. I want to do the whole thing where you just don't wake up. No suffering, no gurgling. Um, everyone else in my car will do those things, but I will be firmly asleep at the wheel, dying comfortably. If you will, turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Um, Proverbs chapter 14, kind of in the middle. Psalm, Proverbs, right in the same area. Shoot in the middle, you'll, you'll probably land there. Uh, the book of Proverbs, really interesting. I, I enjoy reading through the McShane Bible reading plan. Um, it's one of my favorite plans to read because it has you read Psalms and Proverbs two times over the course of a year. Um, and if you do it year after year, it's really interesting because you end up in similar verses and similar kinds of seasons. Um, so it's, it's really cool for seeing how the similar passages, same kind of passages apply differently at different times of life. But Proverbs chapter 14, verses 12 through 16 reads like this. There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with his joy. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. One who is wise is cautious, turns away from evil. 
but a fool is reckless and careless. I think there's, well, obviously, there's so much wisdom passed in that. But if you consider this concept of fickleness, you consider this concept of the wretched man that serves the flesh, you consider this concept of going after what seems like it's right, and you think of the story of Joseph. You think of the brothers. They hate their brother. He's so annoying. He comes with these dreams. He says, everybody's going to bow down to me. They're so tired of him. His, their dad, we talked about the coat, right? They're, he's the favorite son. The, the dad gives him this special coat, and he wears it everywhere. He's annoying. He probably had a really high-pitched voice in my mind. Everything he said was just frustrating to the core. Some of you probably have a sibling like that. Some of you may have that sibling sitting on your left-hand side right now. They're just obnoxious. Everything they do is annoying. They smile, and then they look at you to their right. They just followed after what they thought would make them happy. And so we end today, or we end where they were last week. The famine is coming on the land, right? Joseph's in prison because his brother sold him into slavery. That's what they thought they wanted to do. And I think what we see today is by the mercy and grace of God, he allows these brothers, in spite of what they've done, he allows these brothers to get to a place of repentance. Get to a place of repentance. I think we see that. Um, two other verses, I think, to anchor in our mind, uh, both from the New Testament, both, both from Jesus, uh, first being in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. You read this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I think about that a lot. When sometimes it feels like life is just flowing really easily, I, I wonder, you know, God, am I, am I, am I doing, am I doing your will? Am I, am I flowing with the easy path, or, or am I doing the hard work of following after you as, as Lord? It's great, I think, to keep that on top of mind. Um, also, Mark chapter eight, verse thirty-five: For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Um, with this picture in our minds of following after God, following after God's will, not following after our own fickle desires. And, and the way that we've been looking at this book of Genesis, which is a right way of looking at it, is seeing God as sovereign, right? And so, again, to say sovereign is to say in complete and total, complete and total control of absolutely everything. Every detail is constrained by God, meaning God either decrees that it will occur or God permits that it will occur. But there is nothing else. There is nothing that's outside of his control. So with this picture of a God who's sovereign, we also see in this story a picture of a God who's incredibly active. Um, we have this young boy who has dreams that he just has to go and tell. Um, all the dreams inflame his family but are true such that the brothers hate him they call him that dreamer. Um, they can't stand to be near him so much so that they sell him into slavery. During slavery, it's recognized that um, the Lord is with him. We see that several times. Like Roy pointed that out in the passage that he went through in 39, Genesis 39. We see that 
theme flowing through that God is, is with Joseph. Um, now we have him uh, in, in slavery. He then he goes to jail. In jail, he's able to interpret dreams. Someone finally remembers that he can interpret dreams and calls him out to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, where he's then used by God to see everyone through a famine. And it's at this point that he comes back across his brothers. We see that God is incredibly active in this story. And remember that these brothers are the heads of the tribes of Israel. These are the people through whom God will bring about the promise of Abraham. Through whom God will build a covenant nation. Through whom God will come out of Egypt and lead his people out through Exodus, ready to bring the law to the people. These, these are the leaders of these groups of people, and, and you see they're not the best stock. They're not the best people, and, and I love that about the story. It doesn't gloss over. It doesn't glaze over the fact that they don't make the best decisions. Um, in fact, that's putting it lightly when you think of some of the things that have happened in this family, but we'll get there. Let's look at Genesis chapter 42 in the first two verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy some grain for us there that we may live and may not die. So you see a lot is going on here. Maybe they're Maybe they're all sitting around and they're having a conversation about, well, where are we going to get grain? And he's, his position is kind of like, well, guys, it's in Egypt. That's the one place where there is grain. Why are you even looking at each other trying to figure this out? Go buy some because we're going to die of starvation, which is a slow death. If you have the, the ESV, the NIV, or the NRSV, it's going to say that, that Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. The LSB or the NASB, the NASB, will say that Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. Either way, it's apparent that the one place where you're going to go get grain is in Egypt, and you can buy it. So his point is, hey guys, there's no obstacle. Take some money and go get us food, because I don't want to die. I don't want all of us to die. Now remembering who these brothers are who these boys are is important um, Simon and Levi if you remember in Genesis chapter 34 killed an entire towns full of people after running the old circumcised them before the attack trick and they killed everyone there Reuben uh, slept with his father's concubine which also means that his father had a concubine not a positive note there either um, Reuben would later try to kind of make up you see that Reuben is a bit of a a noser, I guess I'll say, uh, throughout this whole story. He tries to pretend like he's going to save his brother uh, to earn his father's favor back, and that fails. He'll bring that back up in the story when they're all sitting in prison. Because, guys, I told you not to do it, as though he didn't have an ulterior motive. Judah would impregnate his daughter-in-law. Um, she was disguised as a Canaanite prostitute, though, so... And it tells you a little bit about him. That was after his two sons died because the Lord took them out because they were so intensely wicked. And then they 
got together and they sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery, except for the one brother who was pretending he didn't want this to happen so that he could look like a hero to their dad. This is the family. And you think yours is dysfunctional. These guys have got some stuff going on at the home. You can imagine they're sitting around. They've sold their brother into Egyptian slavery. They're sitting around and their dad says, guys, this is not even a decision. The place you go get grain is Egypt. This has got to be in the back of their mind. It's, it's, this has got to be like, oh, Egypt of all places we have to go. We have to go to Egypt where we sold our brother. And I think that there's a little bit of subtle foreshadowing that kind of exposes the wound that's going to come up that we would do well not to miss. It's in these next few verses, so verses 3 through 5. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus, the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, this story is starting to focus on kind of the core of everything that's been going on, everything that's been happening, all that God is doing in the background. Um, we're looking at the brothers and Joseph. Um, and it doesn't say that it was 10 of Jacob's sons that went, but 10 brothers. The, the writer is making you really start to focus on the relationship between these brothers. This is going to come into focus now. This is what we're going to look at. Um, and it also reads that Jacob feared that harm would happen to Benjamin. Um, that word harm, or the word translated here to harm, is only used five times in the entirety of all of the New Testament, and three of them are right here, in this story. The other two are in the book of Exodus, and it talks about what would happen to a pregnant woman's infant if, if she were hurt. And so there's this, there's kind of this, this context that comes together with the word of a, of a depth of care and a depth of grief, and you start to understand a little bit about these brothers, right? They know that this wound in their father is still fresh because their father really never got closure. All they did was bring back a tattered garment and said, hey, it looks like your boy was probably killed by a wild animal in the field. And remember that Joseph, his brother, Benjamin, is these are the only two boys born to their father's favorite wife, who he was after the whole time, for whom he did, what, 14 years of service to Laban? And so their father is still so deeply hurt from it, he sends all the boys except one. And that's going to come up in the story as well. Because, um, well, well, we'll get there. You could also caution that perhaps there's this vestige in the back of their father's mind. There's this, this little thing, this little twinge in the back of the father's mind that says, you know what, I don't know if I trust you guys. I don't know if I'm going to send Benjamin with you because I don't think I trust you with him. Perhaps there's trust issues inside this family, some of them very well deserved. Um, I don't think I would trust these guys either, no further than I could throw them and maybe less. So off they're, off they're going to go into Egypt where they've sold their brother without one of the brothers because maybe their dad doesn't trust him, but also he doesn't want the only other son of his favorite wife to go with them and die. You have to wonder if during their journey into Egypt, if there's some kind of I told you so going along. 
they have to be rehashing the time they sold their brother to a slave trader um, residing in the country where they're headed right now. Verse 6 takes a hard pivot. Um, In case you didn't see what was coming, you will, because verse 6 says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. This is a good reminder because it, it forces you to put squarely in your mind all that God is doing in this story. They have to go to Egypt because there's no other option. This, this, this is why um, uh, the, the 42nd chapter starts out like it does. It starts so abruptly saying, guys, there's, there's, no, there's no conversation here. You've got to go to Egypt and buy grain because we're going to die if you don't. So the only option that's available to them falls in line with verse 6 that Joseph was governor over all of the land. He was in charge of the distribution program. He was in charge of the storage of all of this. He was in charge down to who could buy the grain that would come to them for grain. And we know, because we get to stand back and read this story from our perspective, that God was sovereignly causing all of it for his purposes. God causes all of this for his purpose. There is no errant Adam. There is nothing that happens out of his control. He is using all of this for his purposes, which will ultimately bring the law, which will ultimately set up the Christ who will fully and completely satisfy the law that could never be satisfied by any single person. Jesus will satisfy, it says, every jot and tittle. He will dot every I, cross every T, perfectly follow the law at its core, where we couldn't ever. Um, That's the point that Jesus makes in Matthew 5 when he says, when he's talking about murder, right? And he says, um, if you've been angry with your brother in your heart, you're already guilty of the sin of murder. The one thing that everybody thinks they can get away with, they cannot because we have that in us. It's like the shingles virus, right? Which freaks me out. Because like me, I got this weird Harry Potter scar on my forehead from having chicken pox when I was a baby, which means one day my skin's going to think it's on fire, because I'm going to have shingles, and it scares me. But that's what the sin nature is like. It's just in us. You don't have to do anything. It's just part of who you are as a person. And so none of us can satisfy the law because sin is in us. It's what we're made out of. That's why God is described as holy. He's completely different. The only word that can describe God that we could even start to understand is holy, holy, holy. Completely different, completely set aside, completely separate from us. And so all that's happening is to set up the situation whereby Christ can come into a world where no single person was able to satisfy the law, and he satisfies it perfectly, so that God's wrath could be poured out on Christ, so that there could be a once final sacrifice for sin, so that we could have rest in him, because we never could otherwise. That's why God is sovereignly driving this story in, and it's recorded across so many chapters of Scripture, so that we can see his plan unfold. It's graceful to allow us to see it. Verses 7 and 8. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. 
So the stage is set. We're at this point in the story where we know something is going to happen. We know these are the brothers that hated Joseph. We know that they sold him into slavery. We know that he is in charge over all the land, and there's no other place you can go for food but here. And now the stage is set. They have met, but they don't recognize their brother. Why? Remember back to Genesis 41, 42. One of my favorite passages because I wish I could, in my mind's eye, I wish I could capture what this looked like. I can't, but I wish I could. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he placed it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen and he put a gold chain about his neck. (laughs) I mean, I have so many images of what this might look like. I know they're all wrong, but he's drippy, we'll say, to say the least. He's got some sweet clothes on. He's got a nice signet ring, which again to me is like a four-finger finger ring that probably says something, or maybe like a gold nugget ring. Um, he's got this big necklace. To me, it's big. It's got to be like hanging. Um, he's probably shaved, you know, his, oils look, his face is looking good, all oiled up, all shiny. His brothers don't recognize him at all when they come in to see him. He's probably also not speaking Hebrew, right? He's probably speaking the... Uh, Um, Egyptian language of the time. He's behaving as an Egyptian. He's a leader of the Egyptians. Why would they think this is their brother who they sold into slavery? Clearly, he's in someone's house making grits. The stage is set. We know something is going to happen with these brothers who hated their brother. Um, And and here's the thing, right? Joseph sees his older brothers, and, and he immediately kind of reacts Uh, If you have 10 older brothers and they hate you, you 100% know it. There's, like, you can't disguise that, right? Uh, Brothers are mean as it is anyway. Uh, If you've ever been around brothers or if you have some of your own, I hope you're not younger because if you were, it's a torturous life for younger brothers. There's nothing the parents can do to help either. It's just, life's just going to hurt. You're going to find yourself in strange situations uh, you're going to, you know, get tickled till you wet your pants. It's probably the best thing that you can hope for with brothers. But these guys hate their brother. So here he is, no beard, not looking slave-like, with a huge chain, some fresh robes, and a nice ring, apparently. Probably not speaking Hebrew, almost certainly not. And his brothers come in, and they bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, if this isn't triggering something in your mind, I'll take us back to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37 in the 6th and through 8th verse, um, we get this picture where Joseph is he's, he's telling his dream to the family. He's gathered everyone around. You remember, he says in his little high-pitched voice, guys, I had a dream last night. I want to tell you about it. Come on, I need everybody here to hear it. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold. We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed going to reign over us, or would you indeed rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And here they are in Genesis chapter 42, in a very position that his dream said they would be. 
They're bowing down before him with their faces before the ground. Verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. This is probably, you know, what are we, 15 years, 17 years later? He remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, remember, Joseph is acting in the moment. He didn't know that they were on their way. He didn't know that he was about to be faced by all ten of his brothers. He's figuring things out in the moment. Now, he's obviously a pretty bright dude. The Lord has made him a very smart guy. Uh, several times he's been put in, he's been put in charge over, over Potiphar's household. Um, he was put in charge over the jail while he was there. And now that he's out of jail, he's working for Pharaoh. Sweet ring, nice robes, nice necklace, hair probably lined up, looking really good. He's now in charge of this whole food distribution network that's helping everyone survive. And in the moment, he is pivoting, he is reacting, he accuses them of being spies. He, he comes up with a plan in his mind in the moment because he's going to get everybody to come and that dream that he had as a child is going to come to be reality in its So in verse 9, he remembers the dream. Um, but in the dream were parents and 11 brothers. Right now he's got 10 in front of him. So he, he kind of concocts a plan really quickly to both test the brothers, to kind of find out what is their metal, what are they made of, are they still the same people they were, what's changed about them, anything. And to bring the family back together as the, as the dream that God gave him as, as a young man. Also in here, they admit to his untimely demise, saying, we, you know, we have this many brothers, one of them is no more. That must have been strange for him to hear. Um, so like they had him down in a well, down in a pit, he takes them. Maybe he needs some time to think. Maybe he thinks this is part of like allowing them to process, but either way, he, he throws them into jail. He throws them into jail. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. So he leaves them in jail for three days. All these brothers, right? You've got 10 brothers all locked up together, probably lots of finger pointing, lots to figure out. How are we going to work our way through this one? He says to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your household. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. So in the moment, he accuses them of being spies to kind of set this thing up, right? So that he could say, okay, well... I locked you up for three days. If you're not spies, you say that there are, there's an 11th brother. You, I'm going to keep one of you here for security. I'm going to send you off with grain for the, for the famine, for your families when you go back home. So, so they're taken care of. You come back with the other brother. You'll prove that your story is real, and you'll get your other brother back. So at this point, they could have just taken off and never come back for the brother, right? 
that would have been perhaps consistent with the kind of guys they are. They could have just gone home, said, hey, Dad, somebody got killed. Here's the grain, and they could have stayed. So he's finding out some things, perhaps, about them. We, we also get, he kind of slides in there in verse 18. He says, do this and live. But most convincingly, he says, I fear God. This must have kind of triggered in their mind. Wait, wait a minute. This guy that works for Pharaoh just tells me he fears God. That maybe perhaps makes them more comfortable with this situation. In verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why distress has come upon us. Now, I think it's very interesting that they say we're guilty concerning our brother. Um, this is the brother that they hated. How do I know that they hated their brother? Genesis 37, 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. I think when we studied that, we said that both of those things were true. They hated him, and in case you thought hated was just a strong word, they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. They couldn't stand being around. They couldn't even have an idle conversation right? Uh, he comes in and his little high-pitched voice, and he says, hey, how about the weather today, guys? They just couldn't even take it. They can't even hear this kid. Um, Genesis 37, 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. <laughs> it's always like one-ups how much they hate him. They don't just hate him because of his dreams. They hate him because what he says. But now, this person that they hated, that in Genesis 37, 19, they refer to as this dreamer, as though he's not related to them, as though he's not part of the family. They just refer to him by some random name that they've made up for him. Now, suddenly, as they're in this situation, as they're remorseful, as they've been pushed to the edge, as maybe they're repentant, they're considering their actions before God, they start to talk about him as their brother. Verse 22, and this one kind of makes me laugh a little bit. And Reuben answered them, did not I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. And he returned to them, and he spoke to them. And he took Simon from them, and he bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give him provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Um, I remember one time when I was stationed in Germany, we used to go to the Netherlands pretty regularly. And we were at a gas station and trying to figure out this guy. I have like this uh, long-standing difficulty with European gas stations. Um, having once filled a gasoline car full of diesel. Um, the names of the fuel were Sinza Piembo and Gasolio. You figure it out. Um, but I'm standing at this gas station, and I'm with my buddies, and this European guy has, like, pink pants and a belly bag on. And so I'm, of course, I'm making fun of him. And right as he goes to drive away, he comes over to the gas pump, and he's like, hey, you just need to push this button right here. And pretty much everybody's face. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. Apparently, you were listening to me make fun of you the entire time. 
this is kind of the situation, right? The brothers, again, remember, they don't know that this is their brother in front of them. They've got this guy that's not speaking Hebrew to them. He looks very much like an Egyptian, remember? Sweet ring, nice chain, nice robes. They're over there talking in Hebrew about their brother who's just listening right over here, right? They have no idea. The whole time they've been communicating through an interpreter. And if that little nugget, that little note wasn't there about the interpreter, you would wonder, well, why? They're talking to each other. Why don't they know? So he's listening to them. He's getting to hear a little bit about how they're processing this, right? That he's, he's starting to understand that maybe they're coming to a place where they understand that they've wronged him. And so kind of the testing continues. Um, he, he gets a little bit emotional. He takes one of the brothers. He has them bound. He gives them some grain to take back to the family so everybody's taken care of. Gives them a little walking around money, right? Like Nana, before you walk out of the house. Nana tries to slide you like a dollar, and you're like, you're not supposed to take it, plus what's a dollar going to get, right? But he gives them a little bit of money so that they could have some, some cash as they go about. Verse 26, they loaded their donkeys with grain, and they departed. And as one of them opened up his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to the brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? This is the first time we've heard the brothers acknowledge God at all. They do whatever they want however they want, in the way that makes the most sense to them. And so finally, they get brought to this place where they're low. And I think it's a good thing for us to recognize all that God has been sovereignly doing. And also, something about humility makes us recognize what God is doing in the world around us. It's so easy to just kind of float through life, thinking things happen circumstantially, thinking it's, oh, that's wild how that coincidentally occurred, forgetting that God is very much involved, and there's only two kinds of things that happen, those that God has allowed and those that God has decreed, and that is it. That God has either allowed or decreed that something would occur. Sometimes it's for our benefit. Sometimes the things that are for our benefit don't feel very beneficial, but again, our fickle feelings can't determine what's right. If, if, if what's right was left to the way I felt, it would change from day to day, and it would look super weird. Um, my life, if I got everything I wanted, my life would be really strange. And it would probably affect you in terrible, awful ways, frankly, if I got everything I wanted. Because I wouldn't live here <laughs> right now. Being like Aruba or something, I'd have a plane. Um, you know, I think it would be very interesting if I could just bring up my feed on Facebook and show you like what my marketplace looks like. I think our algorithms are a really interesting reflection of us. Like if I go to Marketplace right now and clicked on it, it would be like airplanes, helicopters, tractors, and classic cars, right? And so if I got everything that I ever wanted, that's what my whole life would look like. Just a bunch of stupid little boys' toys surrounding me and nothing of any import would happen at all. That's what following after your emotions brings. But these guys are humbled and they're starting to see God work, and they're starting to understand that God is behind all of this. And now they're nervous because they've been accused of being spies, right? The, they were sent off by the, the leader, the ruler of the land, the governor of the land, and the money that they thought they would have paid for the grain that's loaded down on these donkeys is back in their bag. That makes them look like they stole it. That's why they're terrified. 
These guys who are accused of being spies just walked away from the governor of the land with all their money in their bag and all the grain loaded down on donkeys. That's concerning for them. Now they've got to go back to their father and say, we're coming back with one less brother, but it's okay because when we come back with the one that you didn't want to send us with because he might not come back, the governor's going to be cool with all of it. We're going to be okay. We'll get Simon and we'll just come back home. They're probably real stressed out about delivering this message. It probably would have been better to just be the one that stays behind in jail for those few days than to have to go back to your dad and convince him of this one. And we'll see Reuben has to lay out a promise where, like, if you're one of Reuben's kids, you're in the background going, go, wait, wait a minute, hold on, I don't know if I like this deal. Anything could go wrong, but we'll get there. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, and he took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We have never been spies. One time we murdered an entire town that raped our sister by pulling the circumcise and attack trick, but we are not spies. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man of the Lord of the land said to us, By this, I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take the grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid And Jacob, their father, said to him, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simon is no more. And now you would like to take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm shall happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Um, Again, if you're Reuben's boys standing in the background, right, just behind this whole thing, you're like, yeah, this is a really interesting story. Like eating a piece of Canaanite candy, kind of hanging out, you know, just getting the wrapper off of a Werther's Egyptian original, working that thing out. And then you hear your dad, uh, listen, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. And you're like, wait, hold on, that's us. I don't like this deal. I think this is a, this is a rough deal. Anything you can, you're walking back, you know, you can get attacked by people. You guys never come back. Then my grandpa takes me out. It's just, it's a bad situation. In the interest of time this morning, we'll have to kind of hit pause on this story and come back to it next Sunday. But what I think we can do at this point in the story is understand that there are some normative principles, which sounds really exciting, meaning there are things that are in this story that are things that God does normally. There are ways that God brings people to repentance. There are ways that God, by his grace, allows us to be confronted 
by our sins, to be impacted by our sins, and then shapes our future dealings and our future walks by what we've seen of ourselves. Um, it is healthy to know that we are but dust. Um, I think oftentimes we think more highly of ourselves than we should, and, and usually that's by way of comparison. We put ourselves next to someone who's worse than us, and we say, well, look, look at how great I am. I mean, that guy, he's, I mean, that guy's pretty rough, but check me out. Right? I've got things going on. I'm a pretty good guy. I fed some, I made someone a sandwich, so certainly God would want to save someone like me. I, I fed someone who was hungry. I'm pretty great. Um, I gave to Toys for Tots. Right? I bought a little, I bought the Hess truck. There was a new Hess truck this year. I bought the Hess truck. I gave it to the Marine Corps toy drive, and so someone had a happier Christmas. I packed a shoebox. Right? I put a toothbrush in there and, and a matchbox car, so now a child's been blessed somewhere. I gave to Sally Struthers. Um, I bought the small engine repair class and I gave to her charity. I was watching Fox News and the uh, a food box for Jews commercial came up. I bought a food box. But Jesus says, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're already guilty of the sin of murder. That is 100% of people. He's talking about what's already in us. He's exposing the fact that we're, when we're born, we're not running towards God. We're running away from God. Um, that's, that's why, you know, when I was a, a highly advanced Bible student, tuned up in Greek and ready for the conversation, talking about the way that the Bible talks about love, there's one form of love that's only ever ascribed to God. It's such a strong word for love, except for the one instance where it turns out I was wrong totally wrong and it's john 3 16 17 18 and 19 that says that we loved the darkness more than the light with that kind of love that's usually only ascribed to god except for the one time it's ascribed to us in the way that we love with a passion anything but god anything against god it's why before you're a believer, you hear a Christian song or you hear a Bible verse, and it's just obnoxious to hear. You're just frustrated. It makes your skin crawl. Or you hear a, somebody that's a Christian, they talk about Jesus, or they talk about sin, or they talk about repentance. And it doesn't just, you don't just laugh and say they're an idiot. You're angered by it. Because the things of the cross are foolishness to the world. And it's not just a, a neutral foolishness. It's one that gets under the skin and so we've got this story of these brothers who, by God's grace, are allowed to be confronted by their sin and are impacted by their sin, and it will shape their future dealings and walk. Um, I always remember my grandfather praying at the, at the dinner table, or, you know, I never knew what meal it was. I, I'm from a southern family, and I don't even know what they're saying, right? It's just made up. Like, everything is supper. I would get told, hey, John, come to supper. I'm like, dude, it's Six in the morning, what, do you, what, what meal is this? But anyway, before supper, which can be any meal at all, if my grandfather decides to slur it out, we, he would always pray in the same way. He would say, Lord, forgive us of our many sins. And I remember being dumbfounded by that. Like, how could, how could we be guilty of many sins? How could you be a, a, a Christian guy, a, um, a believing guy, go to church all the time, but be constantly guilty of many sins every time we eat supper, which is three times a day, you're guilty of many sins. And it's a healthy 
perspective to understand that the flesh is weak, even when the spirit is willing. Because when we don't have a healthy understanding, it sets us up for prideful living. And that's what we've seen in this story of these brothers is they're sprinting after the lust of their flesh. Anything they think is going to make them more comfortable, like getting rid of that high-pitched kid is going to make them more comfortable, you know? No more their dad stitching up special jackets for this guy once we get him out of the house. And so we would do well to take lessons from these brothers, take lessons from the patriarchs, take lessons from these guys who are part of the cloud of witness and understand that what maybe I think makes me comfortable might actually ruin everything and make me miserable or worse, might separate me from God or strain my relationship or make it such that because nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God and Christ, it might make it such that so much is required to bring me back, it's way more uncomfortable than the joy I think I'm going to get out of this temporary thing. And I don't know what that temporary thing is. It could be anything. It could be something small. It could be adultery. It could be satisfying some anger against someone and speaking brashly against I don't know what it is. But I do promise you this, that some temporary pleasure, some temporary joy, some temporary relief is not worth straining your relationship God. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans 8. Um, I think this is such a healthy way of understanding things. If you, if you go, you split your Bible in the middle, you hit Psalms, keep going right. You hit the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll hit Acts and Romans. It'll be pretty soon after that. And you go to the 8th chapter, which follows the 7th chapter, which is like 6 after the 1st chapter, I think is how that works. There's a song about that, so you can know where Romans 8 falls in order. You ever wonder why that song about Father Abraham has arm motions? You know the one I'm talking about? Father Abraham. And many I don't, I've never understood why they move their arms like that. I don't know what that has to do with Abraham. Romans chapter 8, verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. God who was active in the lives of the patriarchs is the same God of Romans chapter 8 who searches hearts and knows the mind of the spirit and intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's not disengaged with your life. He's not disengaged with your day-to-day -day life and the decisions that you're going to. That's why we appeal to God, not so that we can change God's mind, so that we can align ourselves to the very will of God. 
That's why we pray. It should make sense in a world where we're so fickle that God knows what is best for us. The prayer of a healthy, strong Christian is not, God, give me the thing I think I want. It's God, help me see your will for this and let it be so. If it's the thing that I think makes me uncomfortable, I trust your will over my fickle emotions and desires. I trust your will. And sometimes the word has already spoken to us. The will, the, the will of God will not be out of accord with the word of God. So sometimes we need to go to the word of God because it's already said, pray. God, we love you. We trust you completely because we know that we can. We know that your character, your will, and your nature can more than withhold the weight of our faith. And so we lean on you for understanding. God, we trust your spirit. Um, We ask that you give us the ability, the capability of discerning your will for us in every decision, God. Would you give us opportunity to to grow in our faith and our hope and our trust in you? We love you. We thank you for this word, God. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.